I'm Jerry Richardson, and the topic that the planning committee asked me to talk about was mental health in Africa, a nice, narrow, simple, not very complex topic. But I said yes because it's an important topic, and I hope by the time we're done, you will understand perhaps where, if at all, you fit into understanding and addressing this topic. First of all, is this working so people can hear? And second, I'm trying not to get in the way, but if you can't see the screen, I'll keep moving back out of the way till you do. Just a couple of pictures to start with. I didn't get online to show you this YouTube, but this will be uploaded to the website under my name. These two sites, at the end there's a long list of good websites, but these two sites are really excellent sites in terms of getting you a visual uh, of what's going on in some parts of Africa with mental health. Our plan is to have about a 25-30 minute talk and a 20 plus minute discussion. So as you're listening, think about things that you would like to contribute. Some of you here may know more about this topic than I do or questions you'd like to ask and hopefully everybody will participate. Just a few pictures. 14-year-old boy tied up for six years. Mother refuses to have him admitted to the hospital, psych hospital, which is only two kilometers away, northern Uganda, April 2011. Due to insufficient staff numbers, family members are encouraged to stay with patients at this particular Sante Mantal. This relative would often beat, tie up, and drag the patient when she didn't obey his instructions. Goma Democratic Republic of Congo. South Sudan. Mentally ill woman, wardens identify Sandy, stands naked in a squalid cell in Juba Central Prison in South Sudan, October 2012. No dedicated mental health facilities in Africa's newest country. So families often dump sick relatives at the nearest jail where staff have little training or medication with which to treat them. My first introduction to mental health in Africa was as a kid. I was born in Nigeria a long time ago. Um, and I remember as a kid driving through the countryside and near villages, the person with chronic schizophrenia that was relatively stable would live outside the village by themselves, sometimes on a little hill. Uh, and it was always clear who they were. They weren't involved in... In the, in the family, they weren't involved in life. People would probably bring them food. Many times they had essentially no clothes, almost no shelter. But that was the way people with schizophrenia who weren't, uh, be, quote, behavior problems were dealt with. Behavior problems were dealt with by chaining or caging. And that was pretty much the way it was. And part of the problem that you've just seen is things may not have changed a whole lot in the last 60-plus years. Uh, there are some things that are better, but the resources still are uh, not being addressed carefully. One of the main points I want to make is that if this problem is going to be addressed, it's not going to be done mostly by mental health professionals. It's going to be mostly done by general medical practitioners who are in these places who take it on. In 1978, Linda and I, with our two boys when they were young, spent six months in the hospital where I was born in Nigeria, 
I was running the internal medicine service, teaching service for someone who left for a while. Um, and in the clinics, you know, 300 people a day, you've been there, you've seen them, you run them through diagnosis by chief complaint. Usually you can get it right about 70% of the time. We noticed, my houseman and I noticed, the same people were back about every two to three weeks with exactly the same complaints. And the next time we thought maybe it's not malaria or parasites or typhoid or something. We established an afternoon clinic where we brought some of these people back and spent more time with them and found out most of them actually had depression, anxiety, or a somatization disorder. But they were filling up the clinics because nobody was taking time to make a diagnosis and intervene. Fortunately, I found a houseman who was interested, and he actually uh, helped develop and run this clinic, which I think was uh, good for everybody. And we'll talk some uh, later about what we were able to do, because I think it's pretty much what you as a general medical practitioner will be able to do. Uh, so the objectives that I had to turn in so you, you can get CME are you'll be able to describe the two most common mental health challenges in Africa. Right now I'll tell you what they are because they're the same as in the U.S. basically. Anxiety number one, depression number two, chemical dependency number three. The biggest extra in Africa that's huge is PTSD, which is totally ignored most of the time. And then to choose to identify and begin treatment for the most common mental health challenges in Africa uh, is going to be pretty simple. It's a choice to begin with wherever you're working, whether you're a surgeon or a general medical practitioner or a public health person or a village health worker. The choice has to be made to decide to engage. And as those of you that are practitioners in a very busy practice in this country, it's a difficult choice because it takes time. And if you're under time pressure to keep churning people through, making the choice to address this is an important one because otherwise you don't help them and they don't get help, basically. So concepts I'm going to cover pretty quickly. Most of you know about the global burden of disease, but I'll talk a little bit about it because it's important for us to understand what's going on in the world and in Africa. A little bit about epidemiology of mental health, mental illness, resource distribution, where prioritization is, where stigmatization is still significant in Africa as well as it is in the U.S. The responsibility that I've just said of the general medical community for managing this just like in the U.S., the vast majority of depression is not treated by psychiatrists. It's treated by primary care physicians, usually very well if you have the right resources. Um, I trained in internal medicine first, and it was when I was doing my outpatient general medicine that I realized I better learn some more psychiatry because about half of people I was seeing needed some kind of mental health care. So I went back and did a psych residency and kind of got stuck in that but a general medical person will see these if you choose to look for it. Diagnosis is not complex uh, with a, little, a few caveats, and the evidence-based treatment is not complex. If you work in the U.S., you already know most of what you need to know. Now, the concept of um, disability-adjusted life year, D-A-L-Y, is a worldwide epidemiologic concept that helps look at what are the consequences of illness, not just symptomatically, 
You know, we tend to look at symptoms, but at the patient's outcome, premature mortality, years of life lost due to time lived in states of less than full health. In the world now, depression and mental illnesses are number two, and they're going to overtake number one at some point. So if you have your blinders on, you will miss the number two most important burden of disease of people that you're taking care of. Now, what are the risk factors particularly for lifelong mental health problems? Well, again, a lot of this information is from the World Health Organization, which I'll show you later has some great resources. But basically, a study, Mental Health and Poverty Project, indicated that one in five individuals will have a diagnosable mental disorder in their lifetime. Well, that's pretty much like in this country. Uh, among the adults who suffer from persistent problems, three-quarters started in their youth. And basically, most of them between the ages of 12 and 24. So, what's the demographic of Africa? Huge bulge in this at-risk group. If it's not addressed and taken care of, then it becomes a persistent problem that not only is the suffering for the patient and their family, but is a huge resource drain for the culture. Other risk factors are that financial standing of populations does predispose to mental health problems. Uh, basically, those of lower, in Africa at least, lower socioeconomic status are twice as likely to suffer from a mental health disorder. On top of that, we have the facts of Africa, which is at least one and a half million people displaced from East Africa or Central Africa by war, natural disasters, uh, ongoing tragedies. One and a half million individuals displaced, plus all of the rest of what you know happens in Africa in terms of stress, distress, nutritional problems, and health problems. The World Health Organization estimates that 50% of refugees have a significant mental health problem, ranging from PTSD to chronic mental illness. Now, when you're trying to feed somebody and treat their diarrhea so they don't die, it's not easy to pay attention to this. But the evidence is that if we don't pay attention to it, the consequences for the patient and the culture are huge. And it may be one of the many reasons that Africa is having a hard time pulling itself out of where it's been basically for as long as many of us can remember. Now, a simple epidemiologic approach is to look at South Africa. Now, South Africa is not the rest of Africa. So it's not been exposed to the same kind of disasters in the last couple of decades. It's not been exposed to the war in the last couple of decades. But in South Africa, this is, as you can read, is a distribution, which is pretty much like it is in the U.S. Uh, the problem is that it's an outlier, uh, an outlier for sub-Sahara Africa, which is what most I'm talking about. Resources. Less than one per 100,000 psychiatrists which is the reason we can say psychiatrists aren't going to be the ones that solve this problem. 70% uh, of African countries allocate less than 1% of their health budget to mental health. So if you're looking specifically at 
paying for specific mental health services, it, we're a long way away, and we're not going to get there with the present population. Liberia. Liberia has been in the news for other reasons, so we can look at Liberia in terms of the specifics. 0.6 mental health professionals per 100,000 in Liberia. The mental health hospital, which is one of those links that I showed you earlier that you'll have on the slides, has a YouTube uh, video about this particular mental health hospital, which will get your attention when you look at it. Basically, the AMA <laughs> study found that 44% of Liberian adults' symptoms have PTSD symptoms. This is pre-Ebola data. So high, high disease burden, low likelihood of treatment, significant consequences. The stigma is also critical in Africa. You think the stigma is important in our country, which it is. It's still an issue. Um, in most African countries, the discrimination, ostracism, maybe exclusion, maybe imprisonment is dramatic for the more severe mental illnesses, for the patients with schizophrenia, the patients who have psychosis, patients with sort of out-of-control mood disorders. The invisible is all the rest of us, which is a very high number. Uh, we can focus just on the severe mental illnesses, but in many of the countries in Africa, even depression is considered like it has been in our culture, may still be in some parts of our culture, to be mainly a personal weakness or a spiritual failure or some other personal responsibility primarily. Even in mental health facilities, because of lack of resources, living conditions are often very, very substandard. Uganda is an example, and it was true in Nigeria. If you've been to Africa, you would have a similar report that uh, the concept of depression is not really very culturally acceptable. That's why in your clinics, your general medical clinics, people don't come and complain of depression. They come and complain of headaches, burning abdomen, a long list that will be unique to where you practice that you soon learn to read. This is really a mood disorder, a stress disorder, and they need to recognize that and address it that way uh, rather than somebody saying I'm depressed. The term depression doesn't even exist very commonly in some cultures because it's just one of those, one of those things that's not acknowledged. Uh, Nigerian study, my original home country, participants responded to, to questions about this with basically avoidance and anger toward mental illness. Uh, and the stigma was considered to be from lack of education, fear, uh, faulty religious reasoning, or just general prejudice. 34% of Nigerians cited drug misuse as the primary cause of, major, of all the major mental illnesses. Now, I don't think their perceptions are accurate, but that's what, if I'm a patient with mental illness, that's what I'm dealing with. Second most common is the divine wrath and the will of God. And the third is witchcraft and spiritual possession. I'm not saying that these factors don't contribute, but the percentage of people with severe mental illness in whom these are the primary factors is pretty low. 
I just wanted to show you the title of this because it was published earlier this year. There fortunately, at least at the meta level, there's an effort to start addressing this problem with many, many cultures, many, many governments coming together with the help of WHO and saying urgent action is needed. And WHO has every year, and again this year, uh, a World Mental Health Day. This year the, uh, the topic was schizophrenia, but the main point I wanted to uh, emerge from this is you look at of the 45 member states surveyed in Africa, 19 actually have a mental health policy in place. So no policy, no provision, basically, from the government level or from the organizational level. Facilities, I, I showed you what Liberia in terms of number of mental health people. Basically, across Africa, there are 0.6 outpatient facilities per 100,000 people. So a crisis is in the wings. The action plan that's come out of these organizational studies at the meta level are urging the member uh, states to update policies and laws, integrate mental health care into community-based settings, which is where most of you would come in if you become medical missionaries, uh, increase awareness, particularly focusing on prevention and strengthen evidence-based research. Now, interestingly enough, there's a huge amount of evidence-based research already out there. All you have to do is go look, and you'll find it. When the, when the Brits and the French left their colonies in the early 60s, they mostly left behind very well-organized university settings, university <coughs> hospital settings that were doing this kind of research. So the epidemiology is there from the 60s. Between the 60s and now, it's much less, though there's some effort to reproduce that. But basically, the evidence that I've been talking about, you can find in the literature without much trouble. Now, to move from the problem to what can be done, that's the second point I was asked to address. Uh, again, the World Health Organization has taken an active role and trying to help us and practitioners learn what the problem is and learn how to manage it. And this is one of the websites. Again, it will be on the, on the slide set on, on, that I'll post on the website. Management of Common he Mental Health Problems by General Practitioners. It's a very concrete, very helpful, very specific resource that anybody with any medical training at all can follow if they choose to. Uh, there's a mental health gap action program going on internationally. And in Africa, it's behind, but the effort is there. There's an intervention guide. This is for uh, stress-related, I'm sorry, for non-specified mental health. And there's one for stress-related disorders. So you don't have to look very far beyond what you've already learned in medical school or nursing school or training and some specific resources written for under-resourced areas. It helps you go from here, I can prescribe almost anything that's on the formulary, to uh, what do I do with what's actually available there. 
the paradigm changes that are needed that we need to be part of is from excluding mental health, parsing it out, putting it out somewhere else, to inclusion in the everyday practice of medicine. Uh, we need to move from the biomedical thinking about it to the biopsychosocial spiritual thinking about it, comprehensive thinking. One of the key things that research is, is reminding us of is that many, many mental health problems are longstanding, and we need to move into the chronic illness paradigm of management rather than the acute illness paradigm of management, just like we're learning to do with diabetes and hypertension and all those other things, which if we don't take a chronic illness paradigm, we don't really help the patients in the long run. Um, we need to move from, the evidence has moved from single disease focus. Well, this person seems like they're psychotic to this person seems like they're psychotic and this is what they have. Now, in much of Africa, your differential diagnosis is going to be pretty clear. Uh, psychosis can be caused by a whole bunch of the infectious diseases and metabolic diseases that you'll see in Africa. And if you just focus on the psychosis, just like happens here, if you just, an old man comes found wandering in the street into the emergency room, not knowing where he is and feeling like somebody's following him, if you don't check a blood glucose and find out his blood glucose is 30, and you give him, all you do is give him Seroquel, you totally miss the boat. The same thing happens in Africa. And yet it's easy to get stuck on the psychosis because it's what may present itself most dramatically. So on the last point was that the interventions we have in mental health are just as effective as those for communicable diseases, if not better, if we will apply them. In fact, that's true abroad, across the board with psychiatry. I don't need to sell that to you, but uh, I, tell, I teach my residents that um, they can compare almost any treatment they have to any of their fellows in family medicine, internal medicine, with pride because we do as well in almost everything, even though the perception is that we don't. We actually do. So what about interventions? If you learn interventions for the anxiety disorders and the mood disorders, you will capture at least half, if not more, of the mental health problems that come across your uh, your desk or come through your clinic. And these are the ones that are pretty much the same as you'll see here, except the PTSD in much of war-torn Africa is much, much higher. As I said earlier, among the refugee displaced population, WHO thinks it's close to 50% are suffering from a significant mental health and or PTSD problem. Uh, and just because the war stops doesn't mean it goes away, as you know. As far as mood disorders, bipolar disorder is not that common compared to major depression. But managing it in an under-resourced setting is not that complicated either if you're willing to take a risk weighing wanted and unwanted effects of drugs. I think we should give up side effects. Drugs have wanted and unwanted effects. They aren't side effects. They're effects. And we have to weigh that in every patient with every drug. And in this kind of under-resourced setting, that weighing may lean in the direction of taking a few more risks if the patient and family are willing. Uh, one of the first things that 
often needs to be done is to have a, a first responder awareness of what to do in certain crisis situations. And this is a, a link, again, you'll be able to go to it yourself later, that basically was developed as psychological first aid for the Ebola virus. Um, how much are people in this country worrying about Ebola? Can you imagine living where you've had 3,000 people and probably that's underestimate, 4,000 now in that part of the country? Uh, worry, anxiety, stress, distress, uh, uh, behaviors that are not productive for managing things. Uh, you just can't imagine how much that has added. No, nobody's on epidemiology yet in the mental health side of things. So, some principles, and these these are going to be pretty straightforward. Uh, looking at the DALY model, that is, averting mortality or time lost in productive living and health. The older antipsychotic drugs plus psychosocial treatment win hands down in terms of cost effectiveness. And we can talk about specifics later if you want to. A lot of places say, well, I don't have any of the new drugs. You don't need the new drugs. Uh, the old drugs are fine if you learn to use them. Now, unfortunately, there's a generation, there are a lot of young people here who have never learned to use Elevil. Before the SSRIs, amipramine, you know, amitriptyline, nortriptyline, those were our golden drugs, and they work. You just have to get people through them long enough so that they get a response. So I'm going to challenge you if you're going to head out to an under-resourced area. Even though the cost of SSRIs and the cost of atypicals may drop substantially and the availability may drop substantially, uh, if you learn to use the old drugs, you will save money for the per person who can afford almost nothing. The evidence for schizophrenia, which is the only one I'm going to talk specifically about, is uh, no treatment compared to antipsychotics, there was about a 20% improvement. If you add psychosocial treatment, the improvement almost doubles, at least another third. Psychosocial treatment, then, is one of the many factors that we're going to have to include in our thinking if we're going to be providing care for these people rather than hoping we don't have to deal with them, which I think is not very likely. And we can talk about realities of psychosocial intervention. Depression, the same formula, maintenance psychosocial treatment plus a tricyclic, is the evidence from the, the studies the most cost-effective per averted disability. Bipolar disorder, older mood-stabilizing drugs plus psychosocial treatment. Uh, I'll mention this a little later, but um, it's possible to use lithium without blood levels. Horrors, horrors. Anybody that's used lithium a lot knows that you can follow lithium toxicity by following lithium toxicity. Diarrhea is one of the first things that happen when people get lithium toxic, so you back off on the dose. You don't have to wait till they're confused and disoriented. Tremor. Basically, you can follow unwanted effects often to stay with a drug that's very effective. Now, in Africa, lithium's 
it's cheap but but complicated because dehydration can be a problem and so forth. But even uh, Depakote, Valproate, can be most of those drugs can be used without our reliance on on blood levels like we've come to do here. Panic disorder, tricyclic plus CBT. And so you say, how do you get CBT in an under-resourced area? There are actually very good studies, most of them in India so far, which show you can train a homemaker who's a caregiver in a community to do effective CBT for mood disorders. But you have to train them, and you have to supervise them, and you have to help them. But once they're off and running, they do a a fantastic job. So if you're going to be working in one of these places, you probably need to learn enough CBT so you can teach it to people who are going to take the time to do it, because most of you probably aren't going to take the time to do it. Um, The Beck's uh, Feeling Good, the New Mood Therapy has been translated now into Chinese, I know, and I I haven't heard other translations. But, uh, again, it's, it's not rocket science. It's a matter of understanding and applying the principles. So, overall, the principles for mental health policy interventions broadly and that missions needs to think about our partnership are that community care is better than hospital care. No argument there. Drugs are not the panacea. They help. But as with most chronic disorders, uh, long-term treatment and behavioral or psychosocial interventions are superior. The older drugs are relatively cost-effective. And population-level prevention can be cost-effective. So if we and our partners in the secular world figure out what to do with these 12 to 24-year-olds who are the ones that are going to be carrying this burden for Africa for the next 20, 30 years, uh, we've saved a huge amount of pain and suffering and a huge number of dollars and resources. So... um, I'll take about five minutes to go through the drugs since not everybody here may be that familiar with using some of these drugs. Again, for tricyclics, if you don't have any unwanted effects, you probably aren't giving them enough. Simple. Uh, And one way to titrate is to titrate by, if it's just constipation, a little bit of urinary hesitancy, dry mouth, maybe some visual accommodation problems, Most people with coaching and support, I just had another person recently with, quote, treatment-resistant depression who nobody had ever tried a tricyclic. I coached this person through the three or four weeks that it takes to tolerate it, and she says, my pain's gone, my depression's gone, why haven't I done this ten years ago? Uh, Superior to many of our new drugs. So learn how to use them. Cardiac arrhythmia that we worry about really is not as important for most drugs. As you know now, the FDA warning on citalopram, which put everybody in a panic because we all had people on doses higher than those recommendations. Revisit of those studies show uh, a subset of people may have a higher risk. You can identify them and not worry beyond that. The same for almost all all of the drugs we use. other thing to remember about using most of our drugs is unwanted effects precede wanted effects. That's why your patients who've taken one drug and said it made me one dose, it made me sleep all day, so I stopped it. Unless you're able to coach them long enough to get the benefit, you're going to go through every drug there is 
without benefit. Um, most will tolerate and benefit in time. And basically, you can't declare a person unresponsive to adequate doses for up to 12 weeks. So our desire to somebody's better next week or even later this month, a high percentage do, but the percentage of people that continue to improve goes out to at least 12 weeks. So giving up on a drug before 12 weeks isn't scientifically valid if we can coach our patients. Same with antipsychotics. Unwanted effects precede wanted effects by hours to days or sometimes weeks or months. There's evidence with schizophrenia now that improvements in drug effect response may go on for six to eight months. So our desire to get somebody better in three days in the hospital is nuts when you think about it. I mean, we can maybe calm a few symptoms have them back off from the worst of their psychosis. But in terms of what they really need, it's the next six or eight months of us sticking with them and helping them stay with it. It's most important. Um, again, with the older drugs, if somebody's not having extrapyramidal symptoms, you probably aren't giving them enough. They don't have a little bit of tremor or cogwheeling, a little bit of gait change, and they're psychotic, keep going. Uh, Unwanted effects, again, the cardiac risk, I don't know about your institution, but people get all panicky about the fact that we use a lot of Haldol in the consultation service because it's the most effective in the delirium context. And people, oh, you've got to go to the ICU and monitor their rhythm. Not really true. Uh, but in, a, in our rich resource, resource practice, that's what's done. In under-resourced area, the statistics are that the problem is so low that the risk-benefit leans way in the direction of using these drugs. Um, lithium. I already talked about lithium. Diarrhea, tremor, confusion, and polyuria, polydipsia are ways you can monitor whether your blood level is getting too high. If somebody's confused from it, then you're clearly too high and have to back off. But um, I remember using that in Nigeria with with uh, someone who was willing to return to report their symptoms, and you can do it. Same was true when there was a manual, pardon me, written for mental health in rural areas in Papua New Guinea. This model, an under-resourced setting, can work. Benzodiazepines, I don't need to talk a lot about that, except that they're both overutilized and underutilized. They're underutilized in panic disorder, uh, to give somebody with a panic disorder a half milligram of Ativan every four hours is useless. It's a little bit like giving someone with a hypertensive crisis hydrochlorothiazide every 12 hours. The right dose is the dose that works, and if your autonomic system is in a blitz, some people need 6 to 10 milligrams during the first day to settle the crisis, and then hold them there with a longer-acting agent to get better. So we undertreat panic disorder dramatically because we're afraid of these drugs. Using benzodiazepines on a long-standing basis for panic anxiety disorders is overtreatment because the evidence is that adequate SSRI, TCA, other medications actually support actually control rather than simply suppress the panic disorder. 
So it's again, it's like treating a hypertensive crisis inadequately and then not treating long-standing hypertension appropriately. Electroconvulsive therapy. Everybody sighs and rolls their eyes. Well, in Africa, it's a very, very effective, useful, uh, and accepted treatment. Uh, it's not complex to learn how to do ECT. The most important thing is to have a good anesthesiologist or to learn how to do the anesthesia yourself. I've shipped ECT machines to Africa when we, when we upgrade to the next one. I've taught people how to use it. I've taught general medical practitioners and general hospitals how to use it. Uh, in East Africa, for a while, it was becoming very, very helpful for the HIV crisis that people were seeing. Somebody would get diagnosed with HIV and have it you know, before HIV was well understood and well managed, would have a nearly psychotic crisis. It's quick. It's effective. It has unwanted effects. But again, learning to use ECT, if you are interested in having quick, effective treatments in under-resourced settings, is something I suggest you consider. We can talk about that later because a lot of you may have different opinions. Obviously, psychosocial and spiritual care is a critical part of managing all of health problems, including mental health problems. There are evidence-based therapies for anxiety, depression, CBT, IPT, uh, Others are emerging that are even simpler. Uh, other psychosocial scare, care is available. In our clinic in Ogbomashaw, what we did was, in our afternoon mental health clinic, we involved the chaplains. We would often get the pastor of the church involved, uh, sometimes work with the pastor of the church on reconceiving what mental illness is, uh, getting the support system from a family you don't have to develop a highly skilled professional group to do the psychosocial care. Now, there are some people like Dan Fountain and his hospital in uh, Congo who found gifted counselors in the community and enlisted them to be part of his mental health team for the mentally ill. Uh, those things work without having to go to four years or eight years of training. If you can get the right person who's gifted and who's willing to know when they don't know. The most dangerous people, as you know, are interns who actually are third-year residents who don't yet know what they don't know. They don't know that they maybe should still be asking for help. Um, so these are realistic things that can be provided by engaging the person's community. So this is what we've covered. And then it's time for your input, questions, interaction, and help. We've talked about the global burden of disease, epidemiology, resource distribution, prioritization, stigmatization, the fact that this problem is not going to be solved by primarily by the mental health subspecialty group. As I said, the diagnosis, if you learn how anxiety and depression manifest where you're practicing, is not that complicated, and neither is evidence-based treatment. So it's a real medical issue. I underline medical. Carving it out hasn't worked well in this country, and it doesn't work well in the rest of the world. Uh, it's a major burden. Africa has more mental health burden than most of the rest of the world and fewer resources. Uh, we have to get more of us involved than just the specialists to do something about. And since, 
at least as recently as 25 years ago. I don't know the numbers now. Nobody's done the research. Most medical care in Africa 25 years ago was provided by mission or Christian hospitals, hands down. Still a significant percentage. So if we don't do it, it's not going to get done to a lot of people. On the... uh, on the uh, slides that I'll upload, there are a lot of useful, helpful websites. Uh, and just for those of you that actually are interested in reading something about this, I recommend this book of Spirits and Madness. Uh, Paul Lindy went to Zimbabwe. The guy finished his psych training, I think, at UCLA or UCSF, and he and his wife decided they would tour the world. And they would work a little bit wherever they could along the way. He landed in Zimbabwe, and there was no psychiatrist at the Harare Central Hospital. So he said, I'll try. And with really, really, really good nurses, all of us in medicine know without a good nurse we're dead, and our patients are dead, with really, really, really good nurses, and his willingness to learn, uh, he was able to make a significant contribution to the mental health care of Zimbabwe by helping out in the main mental health hospital. Um, it's, it's an interesting read for those of you that are thinking about mental health as a career, partly because uh, most of us think with some accuracy that becoming a mental health professional doesn't give us much to do in missions. Um, there are at least two things that are wrong with that thinking. One is, uh, and there's a need for this, and I'll introduce uh, Bill Hoppe has, is a psychiatrist who's been practicing in Chiang Mai uh, for quite a few years, primarily working with missionaries. Another topic is that missionaries have as many mental health needs as the rest of the population, in some places more. And to keep the workforce strong and healthy, having resources where they are rather than evacuating every time there's a crisis is a huge benefit. So Bill and uh, Chiang Mai and uh, Roger Brown and Dick Baje and others in Kenya have been at this for a long time. And all of them are getting a little long at the tooth and gray in the hair. So they're looking for replacements. Uh, and Bill's got some brochures in the back about Tumaini in, in Nairobi. What are the ones you have from Chiang Mai? Cornerstone and Chiang Mai. Uh, so if, you, if you're thinking down the road, maybe what I'd like to do is to help be a missionary care support mental health person. The door is wide open and there's lots of opportunity. So talk to Bill uh, about his experience. The other is... Um, the thing I learned fairly on in my short-term mission things, I learned fairly on that to help with mental health care, the most effective thing I could do was to go find somebody interested there and teach them how to do this rather than do a whole bunch of it myself and go away. So I would challenge you, if you're interested in making an impact as a mental health professional, you can go work in a mental health hospital in Africa But that's probably not the greatest need. The greatest need probably is to go and get your general medical trainees in whatever hospital it is interested, knowledgeable, and educated. And what's 
what I found fascinating is even the hardcore surgeons, because they saw so much of this in their clinics, realized that something needed to be done, at least were on board in trying to help address it. Uh, so those are the two things that as a professional you can do at least. And as a general medical professional, you can do a lot by educating yourself and getting as many skills as you can here before you think about doing it there. Okay, I'll stop there, and we got 15 minutes for questions. And Yes, ma'am. I'm not very good at making that diagnosis. Uh, if uh, in my practice in Rochester, Minnesota, 98 out of 100 people that have been referred to me by pastors for possession have schizophrenia. I'm not saying possession doesn't exist. I'm saying I think it's overdiagnosed in the in the religious community. Uh, for, and I have no expertise in exorcism, so I don't. If it, if that's what it turns out to most clearly be, then you have to find somebody, <coughs> pardon me, who knows how to deal with that effectively. Um, and in Africa, um, there aren't a lot of people who have expertise, even among the church leaders, to some degree because they've been Westernized, um, which has its pros and cons. So that's a good question, and I don't have a good answer, except that discerning that I think is is it's important, but very difficult. Yeah. If, I mean, you have to do a fairly good suicide assessment, suicide risk assessment. It's a risk. It's a definite risk. Um, at, at least in parts of Africa where I've been, if you give a medicine and it doesn't have some unwanted effect, they don't think you're giving them anything worthwhile. So having something that has some unwanted effects can be a benefit. And I think frequently... That's an aid in terms of both they thinking you're really doing something and they're coming back for follow-up at the same time. But it, yeah, it's a real problem. It's a reason that people are scared of trisomy. And it's, it's appropriate to first where we have it and readily available to use the less deadly medicines. But it's a good question. Anybody else? They will, they will, if they see results. Okay. I mean, usually there's an acute course. Some people, you know, maintenance is every six weeks. Some it's every two months. Uh, sometimes, fairly frequently, medications that weren't effective before a, a, a remission will be effective now, and you don't have to continue ECT. So there's a, a lot of variables in using it. Yes. What do you think is the minimum amount of time a psychiatrist, mental health professional, should go for a short-term mission to, uh, to be effective? The question is, minimum amount of time a mental health professional should go to be effective. 
maybe somebody who's been out there and received us as helpers can answer that better. But my sense is to go and be effective treating a short term is not very helpful. Go effective teaching is helpful. But some of you that have been out there longer, if you have an opinion, please help us out because people aren't always honest with us when we go to to help. Yes? I don't know a lot of good examples. I do know that uh, is it bon- the, the hospital in Northwest Cameroon. Uh, what's it, remember the name of it? Mbingo is actively training their people to understand and engage. Their, I think they have a family medicine, internal medicine program as well as their, their you know, surgical training programs. And they do get psychiatrists to come and uh, treat fairly regularly. But there, there are very few training programs in psychiatry. There are none that I know in mission hospitals. Yes? I'm not aware of any. You know, I was looking the other day to see if that model had been tried, and I, I didn't find any. Yeah, very You're good. familiar with it, so did you find it? I, I haven't. I was okay. curious if you knew, just because that one was so, it required a lot of things specific to that culture. Yeah. A lot of, like, yoga a lot of buy-in from yeah. the community, yeah. basically. So the question is, when you're doing an assessment with somebody in a clinic, what are the things you look for to try to identify a mental health issue? Um, I must admit the first thing I did myself was recognize people who were back every two weeks. And, again, that's not usually parasites every two weeks. So that was one thing. If they're frequent flyers, frequent visitors, then, it, then your antennas should go up. Either I've missed the diagnosis terribly for their medical problem or maybe it's somatization. The other thing is that I think affect can be helpful. Uh, Most Yoruba people that I know in Nigeria do not have a sad affect. And if the affect is very sad and down and depressed, their psychomotor slowing, there's kind of those signs, then I think that's a clue to at least investigate further. Like I said earlier, and like you seem to be aware of, using the term depression isn't necessarily that helpful. Sadness sometimes is, uh, but seldom, at least in that population, which is where I have my experience, going directly to it as a mood disorder to begin with isn't likely to be very productive. The other thing, and 
if you practice medicine for a long time in a, in a particular setting, you'll get to recognize uh, what what a presentation of malaria really is. You know, most most of us who do short term who haven't been in the same place, everything's malaria. You know, and statistically, you know, fever and chills and headaches and likely, but if you've practiced a long time in a setting, you'll pretty soon, I mean, malaria can present a lot of ways, but you can say, hmm, this doesn't really fit and start thinking about a somatization kind of a problem. Somebody else who's practiced have some good suggestions for our young colleague? Do you have a question? Uh, yeah, I was wondering about um, because of cultural differences and kind of time constraints. So I know a lot of mental health professionals overseas probably don't have time to do CBT or something like that. Whereas group therapy might be more kind of um, effective time-wise if you could kind of work with a lot of people at once. I was wondering whether group therapy is actually an effective treatment for depression in some societies that are more um, kind of group-oriented. Good question. The question is, is group therapy more effective in societies that are kind of tend toward group response and thinking? I don't know the answer to that. I haven't seen any studies. Uh, it would make sense that that would be a model to look at. Because as you know, in this country, because of resources, things are moving more and more toward group therapy to begin with. So the more of you will have skills in that. So that's a good question. Somebody has an ask. Yes. Well, at least in again the context that I was talking about, in other context, engaging the church and the family in psychoeducation and uh, how to respond effectively is important. You know, the model has totally changed in this country for treating uh, anorexia nervosa in the last 10 years, from individual and fix the family to family-based therapy where their family is actually actively involved in the treatment. So I think that model would would apply. It, it, I know that Dan Fountain used that in his hospital in Congo. I know that that's what we tried to do in Ogmolashaw when I was there. You had another question or somebody who hadn't asked yet. Sorry, go ahead. Um, I'm not a doctor, but I'm a social worker working with the community outreach psychiatric emergency services, and I'm wondering if they have anything like that as far as like community mobilization. Do they work with law enforcement, or how, do you, how does Africa work with, like I guess, involuntary? How does Africa work with involuntary care? I don't know. I think there's probably a huge amount of it, but I don't know. The trouble is if you don't have a good place to take somebody, enforcing involuntary treatment isn't necessarily very humane. So I I don't know. Anybody else been in Africa lately that would have an idea about how that's done? I know that most of the time... If there's a behavior problem, there's an intervention, and the intervention may not always be therapeutic, unfortunately, maybe restriction. Somebody over here had a question. Are there any resources out there to help us understand 
So the question is resources to help understand culturally different presentations of mental illness. I don't know them off the top of my head. Uh, I know there's a lot of literature on the different cultures, like you know Argentina, Brazil. They will their literature has that literature about their particular culture, but I'm not aware of kind of a unified something like put together. I think we have to stop. Thank you for your attention. Again, talk to Bill if you'd like about helping missionaries.